You're listening to the Hub City Church Podcast. To learn more about Hub City Church, including our gathering times, you can check out our website at albanyhubcity.com. How is everybody this morning? Two days in a row of sun is super bodacious. <laughs> totally bodacious. <laughs> Welcome. My name is Jesse. And um, I was having a conversation with my grandma this week, and she was talking, asking me what I was talking about this morning. And I was telling her about Matthew and how we go through the book of Matthew and how sometimes it feels like we're in a book for years and years and years. I mean, partially because we have been in books for years and years and years. Um, but I was just kind of reflecting on that and the benefit of going so slow and how beautiful that is that we get to see things that we don't normally look at when we just are reading through to get through something. Uh, like I was thinking through Matt's sermon on the leper and how we got to spend some time in Leviticus. And I'm not promising you that we'll never go through the book of Leviticus as a church, but I don't know if we will or not. So being able to go through the New Testament and just get like little glimpses of Leviticus is a much easier way to digest that. Having just read through the book of Leviticus myself, it's a lot. So that's kind of fun. Uh, so this last couple of weeks, Matt has been going through the book of Matthew, which we are still in today. And we saw that Jesus healed a leper, and he healed a centurion servant, and both of those are people that were like outsiders, and we see an example of their faith and uh, this, this desire to not just be healed, but to be made clean. And in verses 14 through 17, Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law, and then was like, inundated with these requests for healing, like literally being chased around, asking for him to do all these things for him, them. And so this is kind of the stage where we're getting to for today's passage, where um, they literally, Jesus tells all of his disciples to board a boat and they're going to cross the Sea of Galilee, partially because on that boat, all of those people can't get on there with them and they're escaping from, from the sheer overwhelm of being needed that much. I'm sure especially moms in here can relate to that feeling a little bit. So this is the stage. Uh, let's pray together this morning while, before we get much deeper into this. Father God, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for being here with us for this word that you've given us that gives us insight into who you are and in your kingdom and your desire for us. And I just pray that we are all left transformed this morning by your word and that we feel your deep goodness and we feel peace and um, joy that is only found in you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So before we go much deeper into this passage, I want to give a little bit of background on the Sea of Galilee. So first, uh, it's actually called a sea or a lake. Uh, Luke's account calls it a lake, but for because Matthew calls it the Sea of Galilee, we're going to be calling it a sea, and it's called by both names throughout history. 
Um, it's a freshwater body of water, so lake actually might make a lot of sense, but it's fine, everyone calls it a sea, probably because it's just really, really big, it's enormous. It's the second largest lake slash sea um, in the world, second only to the Dead Sea, and it measures eight miles across, 13 miles long, and 33 miles in circumference. And at its deepest, it's about 140 feet deep, and it's fed primarily by the Jordan River. It is well known to be pretty tempestuous, and there's these squall thing, hot water, situation that happens and cold air churns and something and creates all these massive storms. So it's well known for that. It's also really important to the Jewish people because it's actually part of the inheritance that they received when they left Egypt and settled into the promised land. So this is part of God's promised land to his people. In Matthew, so far, we're only in eight, but we've already come across this sea in our reading. So in Matthew 4, Jesus had just finished his temptation in the desert, and he comes down and he starts his ministry at the Sea of Galilee. So if we're reading Matthew 4, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called to them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. So at least four of Jesus's 12 disciples are not only fishermen who are used to boats and the sea, but they were fishermen from Galilee. And they're multi-generational fishermen. So we see that James and John are brothers and they're there with their father. And Simon, Peter, and Andrew are also brothers. And if we look at the context and the era of the time, there's a good chance that Simon Peter and Andrew's father was also a fisherman, and so this is like, this is their legacy. Fishing on the Sea of Galilee is their family legacy. So they come from a line of fishermen, they have fished their whole lives on the Sea of Galilee, they are experienced, and this is their home turf. That's important. It's important because the occupants on this boat for Jesus Calms the Storm passage these are men who know what they're doing. This is not like if I were to board a boat and a slight wave happens and I'm suddenly blowing chunks over the edge. These men are not that, okay? Jesus' disciples have more than likely been through many storms on this very sea before and more than likely have friends and family that are laying at the bottom of this ocean sea. I personally love this passage for many reasons, but one of them is the pure drama of it. It's a pretty easy story for me to imagine myself in the middle of it. In fact, I'm not alone in that. I'm going to show you a, a famous painting from Rem Rembrandt, and it's really hard to see in this, but if you look very closely, which I encourage you to do at home, there's all of these 
ancient Jewish uh, sailors on there, and then in the front, in white, if you can barely see it, is suddenly a 17th century painter who is very not what all the other sailors look like. He's wearing his little painter's smock and everything, and it's Rembrandt himself. He painted himself into this painting, into this story, and he's desperately clinging to the rigging, fearing for his life. I want you to do the same for a minute. I'm going to read you this passage um, in my own words, and I want you to either look at this painting and think of how that feels, how, what feelings it evokes for you, or just close your eyes and imagine yourself here on this ship. You're exhausted, right? You've just been serving people, being chased around, <laughs> being demanded of, requiring attention and healing and comfort. You probably got on this ship and you felt this like great exhale because you're in familiar territory and it's just your people around you. And then suddenly the sun is hidden behind these enormous black clouds and the wind begins howling in your ears while blasts of salt water are stinging your face. The waves are roiling below you. You're staggering over the ship, being tossed to and fro, frantically trying to grab hold and stay fast to whatever you can get your hands on. As an experienced sailor, you're trying your hardest to use all your sailor tricks to batten down the hatches and tighten up the rigging and save yourself. You're soaking wet and absolutely terrified. You're thinking of your friends whose ships have sunk in the past, and you're scared and you're desperate. You've tried all your expert tricks to save yourself and control the situation, and nothing has worked. In this place of near panic, you look for your friend, the one who you've seen heal lepers and cast out demons, and you say, save us, we're dying. And in the midst of this pure desperation and panic, you find Jesus, and he's asleep? Can you imagine the pure shock of that? <laughs> A couple of things strike me first off about this passage. One, in verse 20, Jesus says, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. And then here, literally the next time we see Jesus, he's passed out asleep. So that feels significant to me. It makes me ask the question, why is Jesus asleep here? And what does it have to teach me about who he is? The fact that Jesus is asleep here tells me he's 100% human. Matthew starts his account by sharing Jesus' genealogy, and that's important because it tells us that he is human. The whole Old Testament points to the Messiah, God, with us, being born of a human mother and living a human life here on earth. This human moment Jesus has is a little reminder to us that he is human. He is not only capable of being exhausted, but when he's exhausted, he has to sleep. 
In this human moment, Jesus shows us how to be human in this kingdom he has created. The passage before this one is labeled in my Bible as the cost of discipleship. Jesus is exhausted. He's been pouring himself out to the sick, to the outcast, to the brokenhearted, and that's good and that's right, and it's what we are called to do ourselves. But it also has a cost. Jesus is exemplifying what discipleship and living on mission looks like. It's pouring ourselves out for others. It's being available to those who need us. It's seeing, touching, listening to, loving our neighbors. But there's also a recognition that we can't do that if we don't take care of ourselves, if we don't take care of our bodies. We need rest. Jesus shows us here that it's okay to feel the burden of discipleship. And it's okay to escape from it for a little while so that you can recharge and be fully present on mission again. We're going to talk a little bit more about that later. But Jesus here isn't just fully human. And we get this immediate contrast from him being asleep to him standing up and rebuking the winds and the seas. And the winds and the seas respond to him with obedience. Do you see the drama there? Imagine one minute, all this chaos and fear and darkness, and then suddenly it's beautiful out. The sun is out, the waves are gently lapping against the boat, the wind is perfect for sailing, and the only proof that the last few hours have happened are your wet clothes and your still racing heart. They are looking around at each other completely befuddled. It says, they marveled, saying, what sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? The answer is that he's not just a man. He's also God. And this is good news to me, because Jesus is both fully God and fully man. He walked this earth the same as I do. He knows the physical ailments of my body. He experienced hunger and pain and pure exhaustion. Jesus with us in this human form means he knows what it's like to live this life with us. But because of his godness, he is also big enough to see beyond what I can of this life, to not be afraid of the things that I am afraid of, to wake up when everyone is panicking and be able to say, peace, be still to the wind and to the waves, and also to my own heart. Jesus the man slept because he was fully man, but he was also fully God, and that's why he could sleep, because he knows he's protected by the Father who never sleeps. Psalm 121 promises, He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. And it's because of this promise in Psalm 121 that God will neither sleep or slumber that Jesus can literally sleep in the middle of a storm. He's embodying and showing us and exemplifying this trust from Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, 
though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at the swelling. Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns, the nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice and the earth melts. This is good, good news to me because I have the example of what it looks like to be content in God's presence. Psalm 46 does not promise that peace in Jesus means calm waters. Psalm 46 and here in Matthew 8, we see quite the opposite. There will be storms. There will be chaos and darkness and waves swamping the boat and mountainsides crashing all around us. But we can be still in that place. We can rest in that place. Jesus shows us that we can even sleep in that place. Peace filled, because peace does not come from our circumstances. It comes from God. And Jesus here, fully man that he was, could sleep knowing who God was and that he was in control. This passage is this like beautiful, dramatic snapshot of Jesus as fully God and fully man and what Jesus' kingdom looks like. One filled with storms and also peace, knowing that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness will not overcome it. The second thing this teaches me about Jesus is about his authority. While we've been looking through the book of Matthew, we've been noticing all the places where Jesus' authority is evident. I've personally gone through Matthew and highlighted in one color just all the places where I see Jesus' authority being shown. So this moment of Jesus rebuking the wind and the sea is this powerful moment of Jesus showing his authority. It shows us that Jesus is king of the natural world. I, of course, looked up rebuke in the dictionary, and the first definition is probably one we're all familiar with. Express sharp disapproval or criticism because of their behavior or actions, or as my 16-year-old defined for me, to tell off. In this passage, Jesus is telling off the winds and the seas that they are not acting the way they are supposed to, and they respond to him like a chastened child. I was also very excited to learn that rebuke also means to restrain or to force back. Jesus not only has the authority to tell off the wind and the sea, but to restrain them. That's power right there. Arguably, the wind and the sea are two of the most powerful forces of nature. And Jesus says, stop, and they immediately stop. So Jesus, like God, has authority over the natural world. To God's people, Jesus stopping the sea would have recalled stories of the Old Testament where God established his authority over having power over the natural world. One of these places is in the book of Job, where God answers Job's doubts and confusions by saying, don't worry about your circumstances. I created everything, so don't you think I can handle what's happening for you? Job 38, 4 through 11. 
Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far you shall come and no further and here shall your proud waves be stayed. God answered Job in his moment of doubt and grief and it was to remind him that even the waves obey him. And then we see Jesus in this passage doing the same thing. The disciples cry out in panic and insecurity, thinking that they will die. And Jesus' answer is to restrain the wind and the waves with a word. By calming the wind and the seas and these big, powerful forces of nature, Jesus is asserting his power and authority with God. He's declaring himself the Messiah through these very acts. And he's also showing them that he's worthy of their trust. And it's because of this power and authority and trustworthiness that he shows the disciples that he also has authority over them. In verse 22, Jesus says to the scribe, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And then in verse 26, he responds to the disciples' cry for help with, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? I'll personally admit to being a little taken aback initially by the harshness of both of these statements. On the surface, leave the, bury the dead to bury their own dead sounds a little bit extreme and a little bit cruel. And then my first thought here was that Jesus was actually rebuking his disciples' confusion when they came to see Jesus in their moment of desperation and asked for help. And didn't he say that if we had faith like a mustard seed, that was enough? It's not what he's saying. So let's take a deeper look at that. Uh, let's take another look at this moment on the ship. And they went to, and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? This is another example of the disciples just totally missing the point of who Jesus is. They are scared, and in their fear, they reach out to Jesus saying, we are perishing. But here's the issue with that. While it looks like faith because they ask him to save them, it's the fact that they are fearing for their lives at all that shows the, their pure lack of faith. Jesus is the Messiah. God in the flesh, and he has a clear purpose here on earth, one that the whole Old Testament has been pointing to and is not a surprise, should not be a surprise to them. They should have known that this was not the way the Messiah would die. And that lack of understanding is evident in their reaction to him calming the storm. They marveled and asked, what sort of man is this? They are surprised at his power and authority. And so here Jesus is sad. They have faith that he'll save them, but their faith is that same sort of transactional faith that we've seen with Jesus' followers in the past. They don't have faith in Jesus, God, creator, Messiah. They have faith that he can do really cool stuff. And this lack of faith from his disciples would have been especially painful after the interaction that came right beforehand. 
Again, Jesus may have seemed unnecessarily cruel when he said, the dead can bury the dead. But it's another heart issue of his disciples not wanting him, but what he can offer them. In ancient Jewish culture, proper burial customs were really important to observe. And the Jewish people took the honor their father and mother very seriously. These proper grieving rituals could take up to a year to observe, and all these steps and in mainstream Jewish society, only God could claim honor above a father and a mother. So here, Jesus is actually saying, I am God, so therefore, I take precedence. He's also saying that I am the God of life, both spiritually and physically. So leave the spiritual death and follow me into spiritual life. This man asking to bury the dead is also the equivalent of saying, now isn't quite the right time for me, but when I finish all my checklist, then, then I'll drop everything and follow you. This is like us saying, after that promotion, then my life will even out a little bit and I I can devote myself fully to God, or after my kids sleep through the night, or fill in the blanks, whatever it is. And Jesus is saying, the time is now. And if you fully understand what I'm offering to you, then you wouldn't have any hesitation to go all in. In my Bible, the heading of verses 18 through 22 is the cost of discipleship. And we see what that cost is in these interactions. It costs sacrifice of our own timing and control. It costs submitting and surrendering all the circumstances in our life. It might cost extra time when we could have been working towards something. It might cost extra sleep. It might cost in our energy because being on mission and loving people well is simply exhausting. And I'm not saying any of that is easy. I fully understand that none of that is easy. But we also see in these passages that Jesus is not asking his followers to do anything he's not willing to do himself. Luke's version of the cost of discipleship is found in chapter 14, verses 22 through 25 through 33. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. The cost is everything. Our lives, our time, our resources, our comfort, sometimes our family and friends. Jesus eats with the outcasts. He touches the dirty. He heals the sick. He listens to the sorrows and fears and complaints, and not from far away, but right in the middle of them. 
And as a result, he has nowhere to lay his head. He becomes an outcast himself. He becomes a novelty, only loved for what he can offer and not for who he is. Even his closest friends don't believe in him completely. And this is just what we've read in the first eight chapters of Matthew. We know how this ends for Jesus in betrayal, pain, death, humiliation. This is the cost. This is what he's calling us to. It's not nothing. It's everything. But the payoff? Jesus shows us what the payoff is by sleeping through the storm. The payoff is a life so firmly rooted in the creator of the universe that it doesn't matter what storms are brewing around us. It doesn't matter what our financial status is. It doesn't matter what loved one died, not because those things don't matter, but because the peace and hope that we have in Jesus is our anchor, our safe place regardless of the storms raging around us. We can sleep in this peace-filled surrender knowing that we have the king of the universe with us. We see Jesus filled with sadness at his disciples' lack of understanding. Meet him where they're at again and again and again. Is this a peace that you've felt before, that you're familiar with? Have you been in a storm and felt the peace that surpasses all understanding fill you and give you that light in the dark place? I'm glad, Johnny. If you haven't, do you want to? What's standing in your way? Who are you trusting in when the storm hits? Yourself or the king of the universe? Are you like those sailors trying desperately to do all the things that you know how to do, to control the situation, to fight the storm on yourself? Is there something you're not surrendering? What are you waiting for before the time is right? Imagine again being on that boat. Imagine yourself like Rembrandt, painting yourself into this story, clinging desperately to whatever you can get your hands on. Now imagine yourself releasing your hold and opening your hands and looking over at Jesus, who is sleeping peacefully. Hold that image in your head this morning of Jesus sleeping peacefully amidst the chaos of the storm. 